we think this is the designer's superpower navigating ambiguity because designers are often confronted with a challenge that doesn't have an answer. And that ability to confront the unknown and to be able to solve problems within that is a designer superpower. This is Skilled by Design, a podcast for experienced designers and product managers that want to deliberately grow their skills and become better humans in the process. I'm your host, Tommy Bay, and today I'm talking with Andrea Small. Andrea is a design strategist. She's an educator at Stanford and a writer. She studied architecture and metalsmithing, has a master's degree in human-centered product design, and is currently creative lead at Samsung Research America on their R&D innovation team. Andrea, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Tommy. All right. You have written a book called Navigating Ambiguity, which is an interesting topic and happens to be a skill, which I'm excited to have you tell us more about. First, though, I wanted to ask you, I was noticing, uh, and anybody who wants to learn more about Andrea, her website's andreasmall.com. But on there, I noticed that you won an award for a lunch launcher. Oh my gosh, yes. What is that? (laughs) That was like one of the very, very first things that I made that might have edged towards product design. So I studied architecture and metalsmithing in undergrad. And one of our uh, studios was about toy design. We, We were all entering a competition for toy design. And I created this tiny silver pea shooter that you wear on your wrist like a bracelet. And this is teeny tiny little silver thing that you put a pea in and shoots a singular pea one at a time. And it happened to win an award within that toy design competition, then won another award uh, somewhere else. And I think that was one of the, you know, my grandfather actually had a toy store and I felt like maybe toys are what I want to do. Maybe I want to make toys. And it kind of evolved from there into furniture and uh, you know, silversmithing and then into product design eventually still a lot of furniture, but yeah. Yeah. That's, that's funny. I, I, I loved that project. I have it like <laughs> in the shelf over there. <laughs> that's amazing. My kids are into watching this show called making it, which mm-hmm. is like a reality show where it's Amy Poehler and, and Nick Offerman, and they do these design challenges. They just made uh, toys and anyway, that's awesome. All right. So to, to start, maybe we should level set and maybe you can explain what ambiguity is. I found as I was looking at your book, the definitions were helpful because I wasn't exactly sure how we were defining ambiguity. Yeah. And we put the dictionary definition in there as you know a lot of academics do. And the dictionary definition, I think, is very helpful because it does explain that the root of the word ambiguity is Latin for to act and both ways. And we talk about that in the book of how you balance at taking action and being flexible or being adaptable. So ambiguity is really about holding multiple meanings. It's a layer of meaning we apply to things. It's our interpretation. It's about multiplicities and dualities and just being able to hold space for multiple interpretations or ideas. I think a lot of times people think of ambiguity as 
a thing that you have to eliminate or kind of get rid of in order to achieve your goal. And we think of ambiguity more as kind of this consistent layer of life that sometimes you feel more and sometimes you feel less and you have the ability to access it for creative inspiration. Got it. So that helps with my next question, which would be like, at a high level, why is this something that designers need to be thinking about? Because designers encounter ambiguity all the time. And this is the, we think this is the designer's superpower navigating ambiguity because designers are often confronted with a challenge that doesn't have an answer. And you're asked to figure something out. Like it's really about creative problem solving. And there are an infinite amount of options that you could do an infinite amount of inputs. And that ability to confront the unknown and to be able to solve problems within that is a designer superpower. You know, when we started writing the book, one of the things that we thought about was how much ambiguity design students encounter in the learning process and how Mm -hmm. we don't really teach them how to be good at ambiguity. We just expect designers to be great at navigating ambiguity. And a lot of them are, but it's also something that can be taught. And in general, designers will continue to face even more ambiguity. As we like to say, we are not going back to simpler times, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that the truth? That reminds me in the beginning of the book, I loved how you said the future has never been more uncertain. Is that what it is? Mm -hmm. And, and And you list all of the things that are kind of like uh, maybe have a negative connotation, but all the things that we're worried about. But then you say the future has never been more uncertain and how, how there's all of these amazing things on the horizon. Yes, exactly. And we have to be able to imagine something positive or the opportunity in it, or we'll just, you know, give up. We can't live in only the bad uncertainties that we're all experiencing. Dr. Angela Davis once said that in order to imagine a better future, we have to be able to allow uncertainty to exist. You know, if we very much focus on just what is real today, we might shut ourselves off to being able to change systems in the future. So holding space for, um, And it's not even whether it's good or bad. I like how you said, you know, the the kind of a negative connotation, kind of a positive connotation, because we don't want to label things as good or bad. They just are. (laughs) And we're we're, um, aware that there's a lot of intense negative connotation kind of things happening right now. But we do know that design is going to get us out of a lot of our jams and creative problem solving is what we need in order to do that. That's cool. It makes me excited for the designers out there. There's probably a lot of people who are in positions where they're doing that creative problem solving and don't consider themselves designers when they really are. Do you encounter that a lot? Yes, in a variety of different ways. So I'm a design strategist and I've mostly worked within industrial design and UX design. So when I'm at working at a design firm as a design strategist, the, you know, quote unquote designers are like, you are not a creative you are not a designer. You are a strategist. You're one of the talky people you write. And then in other circles where I'm surrounded by technologists or academics, they're like, you are the designer, you do the design work. So 
yes, I think that everyone, they have a different interpretation of what makes you a designer. The D school feels that everybody has the capacity to be creative. And if you want to call yourself a designer in that way, great. Paola Antonelli once said that holding a post-it note does not make you a designer. And <laughs> I, <laughs> I agree with that as well, but that doesn't mean that everyone isn't capable of some kind of creative problem solving or using a design thinking kind of process to approach new problems, new opportunities. That's cool. I'm, I'm a part of a program at my company right now, and we were talking about you know, business problems. And they brought up this model from the D school that talks about flaring and focusing. And, and I was like, yeah, that's so great because, you know, business problems need design as well. They need Mm -hmm. designs to get to good solutions. Mm -hmm. That aspect of focusing and flaring, you know, we talk in the, the book about how there is no one right process to design. And I like that focusing and flaring because it, it, it illustrates more of the data, like you're going out, you're learning, and then you're making sense of that data. You're, you know, adding that to what your business needs are and what your customer needs are and the things that you're seeing in the world. But you don't just continually narrow, you need to learn more again. And that's the the focusing part. And it is applicable to things just, you know, beyond industrial design, when you're talking about systems or insurance or legal practices, it, it, it all kind of follows that flow. Yeah. I, I like that. So that's, so that's ambiguity. And in the book, you, you've got the teaching of this in, in two parts. So part one is, is what? It's understanding it, learning about it, putting a name to it, getting the definition down, <laughs> just awareness is the first step. And then the second step is about navigating. So how do you actually build your navigating ambiguity muscle? What are the tools? Um, how do you move your way through it? Yeah. In the first part, we talk about the attitudes towards ambiguity and some different uh, tensions that exist. And then the second part, we talk more about the tools and the, the skills that people can build in terms of navigating ambiguity. So the skill building, uh, I think that's, I'm super curious about that. I think I understand roughly the, the lay of the land that this ambiguity exists. Uh, like you said, it's, it's in basically every problem that we confront. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe talk to us about the skill, like how, what's, what's involved and, and how do we get better at it? Absolutely. So traditionally, or, or, you know, traditionally being since, I don't know, 2005 (laughs) design thinking has been thought of as this, you know, five-step process where you observe, synthesize, ideate, prototype, implement. And those are some very defined steps. And then within that, you have techniques or activities or tools. So for example, observing people or talking to people, interviewing, you know, collecting data, secondary research, primary research, those are all activities and things to do within that process. And so we would teach to that process. We would teach, you know, step one, here's how to empathize here's how to talk to people. Here's how to build empathy. The second step is then how do you make sense of all of that? What is the meaning behind the observations and the data that you just observed or learned about? 
And then how do you create ideas from that and then prototype those ideas? And the, the skills part of it comes in because we were teaching towards that process at the D school. And we started to notice that there are more of these, you know, as people know them, the soft skills of leadership, like negotiation, using metaphors, noticing, talking to people, navigating ambiguity, courage, belonging, as you talk to Susie Wise about her book, Belonging, is that's part of this series. Uh, those softer skills were not necessarily being taught explicitly, mm. as opposed to um, the, you know, as I said, they were just kind of, we're expecting students to understand how to negotiate or how to navigate ambiguity or how to have courage or how to design for belonging without really diving deep on those skills. And so when I was a teaching fellow at the D school back in 2015, we articulated them as design muscles, the things that you can practice and build that you have. Some people have more, some people have less, you know, in certain areas, but there are certain things that you can do in order to build those muscles. And those then became what the D school called the abilities the design abilities. So, you know, designing your design work and other things that were more focused on, like I said, the soft skills of, you know, design versus those, you know, like how to take a good photo (laughs) of somebody that, you know, like communicates a lot of data or, you know, how to interview or frameworks for synthesis or different techniques for prototyping. And so there's been this shift in general with design education. Of course, they still teach the more specific skills, like how to render, how to model something, how to prototype, how, you know, all of that. But in addition to that, now we're teaching a more skills-based approach that helps students to kind of build what's necessary in order to navigate the world as we know it today. Because a lot of those tools that we used to learn in school, like 3D rendering, like the programs that we would use to code, they become outdated so quickly now that the the real skill is in being able to learn, being able to adapt to the new thing and not to just focus concretely on one set of tools. And that's where the sort of the shift in pedagogy from, you know, hard skills, although we're, you know, we're still learning that, of course, so we're not going to get rid of that. Everyone, you know, the designers need to know that as well. But adding on those other kind of life skills that are applicable in all sorts of ways, not just business, but also in life. So that's amazing. I I hadn't realized that that really was what the D school was trying to do. And it was right about that same time, 2016, where I, where I started my research into soft skills and trying to switch my thinking to, to more of a skills-based thing, man, that resonates with me so much. And and I like what you said about the process starting to feel limiting uh, in certain ways that when you teach to that, uh, it doesn't really give you what you need to go and be successful because in a couple of different organizations, I would come in, I would say, all right, here's the process. And then within two months, we were we, we weren't using the process anymore. Mm-hmm. We were solving problems the way that the problems needed to be solved. Right, right. The, the process, quote unquote, is great for learners. You know, we've done experiments where we get rid of the process and we just teach by doing and kind of reflect on what the process was afterwards. 
And some students just don't thrive in that kind of condition. You know, they need more structure and we liken it to, uh, following a recipe. So if you're learning how to cook something for the first time, whatever it is, you know, post pandemic, let's say it's sourdough bread. (laughs) If you're learning to make sourdough bread for the first time, you might really rigidly adhere to that recipe because you have no idea what temperature the oven should be. You don't know the measurements for the ingredients. You don't know the timings for certain things. So you might really stick to it. But as you become more expert, you might not necessarily need that recipe. As you said, you know, like, what if it's colder outside? What if it's too hot in the kitchen? What if your eggs are a certain age? I don't even know if there's really eggs in sourdough bread. (laughs) (laughs) I assume that there is, (laughs) you know, you play around with different ingredients, you know, you add things to it, you know, maybe try out different techniques. And it's the same thing with the design process. There are steps that you can follow as a learner. And when we're in uncertain times, like we are today, sometimes it's really great to have a process to kind of fall back on that you're not reinventing the wheel the entire time. There are some tried and true methods that you can look to, to help guide you through a process if you're feeling lost. But at the same time, uh, and we talk about this in that balance of create your own path or, you know, follow, follow the path or create your own path. Uh, sometimes the path that was created was not for you, or it was not for the problem that you're trying to solve. And you really have to forge your own way and in doing so potentially inspire others to create their own paths as well. But we can't just, you know, throw people into the unknown without a guide at all to begin with. There's some learning that needs to happen so that you can feel that comfortable to just jump into the unknown. Yeah. You have to have the skills to be able to vary, to depart from the process. That makes, that makes good sense. I like how you explained that. I think that also people inherently have a lot of those skills. You know, we want to approach and particularly in this book, we want it to make it feel accessible. There isn't something that's like out there that you have to learn in order to be able to do this. A lot of it is natural instinct. People who don't have a lot of agency still have uh, a great ability to navigate ambiguity and to be flexible and adaptable. So there's a lot that's just natural to being a human being that isn't just like, this is a business skill. And these are the things that you have to, you know, check off in order to say you're a certified ambiguity expert. (laughs) Good points. So in the book, you've got, you talk about the tools that you need to navigate. And then you talk about some, how do you put it? Like balance checks? Yeah, Um, balances. Yes. I'm I'm curious to hear more about those uh, balances. Yes. So the balances came about because my co-author Kelly Schmoody and I uh, initially started with really wanting a finite toolkit to offer people. You know, we wanted to say, here are the 10 tools of navigating ambiguity. And we quickly realized that that's not, that that, that's not a thing that exists (laughs) and suggesting that there is a finite list is antithetical to navigating ambiguity what's important is learning how to balance. And Kelly had done a lot of research actually with uh, Polynesian wayfinders. She she actually interviewed people who are uh, part of the Polynesian Wayfinding Society and talked to them about the history of wayfinding. You know, wayfinding and navigating uncertainty, we didn't invent it. 
you know, it's been a, a part of all sorts of cultures and religions and people for, you know, as long as people have existed. And what she learned from Wayfinders was that they have this knowledge, they do memorize the stars and they learn about the uh, color of the ocean or the currents or the mig migratory patterns of birds or the shapes of the clouds in order to navigate. They do have that knowledge, but they're constantly balancing things. Like, you know, I don't, I don't sail, but <laughs> if, if someone understands sailing, you have to you know, balance your response to the wind or to uh, the direction that you're trying to send the boat in. And so we came to this idea of attentions instead of specific tools. And you mm -hmm. always have to be balancing these things. And sometimes you need to look in, sometimes you need to look out. Sometimes you need to zoom in and look at something very closely. And sometimes you need to zoom out and look at the whole system, look at the bigger picture. There's no finite thing to say of when to do which. It's very context dependent and you know it, it is about the person and your team and the project that you're working on. And that's how we came to talking about it in terms of balances or tensions. And, and again, back to the core root of the word ambiguity, both of these things exist at the same time. Zooming in and zooming out are things that exist at the same time. You can do both of those at the same time. You can do one more than the other as you need to. And then within that, we have some practical tools and ways to apply that or ways to practice that. That's how we, how we frame those activities. But the, the aspect of balancing also speaks to how active it is root word, ambiguity, acting. It's not mm. like a pause and wait and just be Zen kind of thing. It requires work. It requires movement and balancing does require action. It's not just about like standing still. Yeah. We have, we have a, a framework in there that's, you know, like we try to put it in sort of a simple framework of acting and adapting on one side. We say, uh, you know, if you are all, uh, acting, and no adapting, that might speak more towards being a control freak, you know, like really <laughs> wanting to get in there with the details and not being very flexible and, you know, telling people how it needs to be done and wanting to control everything. And then being super adaptable, but not taking any action is like being a bag in the wind, just going wherever the wind takes you. And there's nothing actually wrong with either of those. And sometimes you have to access them, but the more that you're able to act and adapt, the greater your ability to kind of trust and go with the flow and uh, navigate ambiguity becomes easier as you start to build those muscles of acting and adapting. So you had look in, look out, speed up, slow down, focus and unfocus. Yep. And what am I forgetting? Follow the course, create your own path and zoom in, zoom out. Follow the course versus create your own path. Is that kind of what we were talking about with, um, with the design process itself? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's really appropriate to take out a map and to follow that map, I'm going to Yosemite in a couple of weeks. I will be following a map as we hike. You know, that is not a good time necessarily to create your own path. But at the same time, 
we use an example in the book about Yosemite. And I think it's Alex Honnold, the climber who free soloed El Cap and how some of what he did was really creating his own path, you know, going off of what people thought was humanly possible and forging his own way. So that's the, the balance of sometimes you need to stay the course. Sometimes you need to forge your own path. I can see a lot of application in the design space and in, in the problems that I'm dealing with where, you know, it seems like there is a prescribed path and maybe that's the best way, but it sounds like we, we always need to be open to, oh, no, this is the time to, to diverge, to move off the path. Mm -hmm. And it just takes experience a lot. I'm sure that you encounter this to know whether now is the time to follow the way that we need to do things, or now is the time to diverge or to open things up or to change the process a little bit, to go with the flow, to respond to whatever the changing conditions are. So that's timelines and budget and teammates and goals, you know, all of those things are shifting. And so it, it does take experience to know when it's important to, to do one over the other. Balance. It's all about balance. Yeah. Cool. I'm always amazed that these conversations go so fast. To wrap us up then, what should we do if we want to go and get better at navigating ambiguity today? What's your suggestion of like, where, where do we start? What actions should we take today? We, we had a question recently. We did a workshop earlier this week, Kelly and I, co-author Kelly and I, and someone was ask, asking the same thing of how do I start practicing this right away? How do I you know, get out there and do this? We don't necessarily think that navigating ambiguity is a moment in time. You don't like set aside 10 minutes in your day to practice navigating ambiguity. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of people who have meditation practices of any variety. That could be a time where you, you know, you do set aside time, but we encourage people to, to prototype essentially to start small in low risk ways and build up your tolerance. So, you know, we don't necessarily want to say to someone like today, you should go jump out of a plane, you know, and like really throw yourself into the unknown and like put yourself in this super uncomfortable position. Uh, not necessarily, maybe opening yourself up to ambiguity today is going to the grocery store and really taking a look at the people around you or like going down an aisle that you haven't before and just starting to build some of that curiosity without expectation without saying like, I'm going to go out today and I'm going to find this thing and I'm going to turn it into something, just exploring ambiguity. We also have some like little activities that you could try. Like in the book, we use this paper, like crumbling a piece of paper, or making a swiggle and seeing how many things you can make out of it. Or a classic design school one is like creating a hundred circles and then making those circles into a hundred different things. There are little ways to start to practice that you don't give yourself, there's no like failing great if you don't do well. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I think that there are some games that I play with my kids that are similar to that, where you, oh. you know, you draw the scribble and okay, what are you going to make out of it? Adults lose that ability to be creative because we start to judge ourselves and we start to, to think like, well, I'm just not that good at drawing or whatever. Kids don't quite have that self-judgment yet 
to not just jump in there and be creative and try things out. And a lot of what we teach people at the D school is trying to access that creativity without judgment again. So there are a lot of things it's like, oh, that sounds like, you know, a kid's game, or that sounds like an improv activity. And like, it is because you're trying to access that part of yourself. We encourage people to kind of take that childlike attitude and uh, try things out in low risk ways. Nice. I like it. So we should go out and join an improv troupe and maybe throw ourselves out of a plane. I think that's what I got out of that. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I said. Skydiving <laughs> <laughs> and improv. Yep. It's, it's what we all need. A little bit of that. All right. Well, you are amazing. This was really uh, helpful and, and insightful. So I appreciate your, your time explaining things to me. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about the book too, us being me and Kelly, of course. And, you know, we just want to say it's part of a series. So, you know, you talked to Dr. Susie Wise, but there's four more books coming out in the fall and four more books coming out in the spring from the D school that are all about building those creativity muscles and, you know, we encourage people to, to check those out as well. Awesome. Yeah. I highly support the series. It's all really good stuff. So thank Great. you for sharing it with us. Yeah, absolutely. Great to talk to you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And thank you. And thanks to you listening out there for joining us. Remember to share this episode with someone who would enjoy learning about navigating ambiguity. And if you could take a minute to rate the podcast, uh, it helps others to find us. Appreciate that. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on Skilled by Design.